a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't the say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Right now, we are joined by Matt Shepard. He is the voice of the University of Michigan Wolverines basketball team, also the Eastern Michigan football team, and a whole bunch of other uh, titles along the way. And Matt, first and foremost, just thanks for coming on, and how are you doing today? Good, Logan. How you been? Yeah, certainly have been great. Nothing to complain about, and for people who follow this podcast closely, we talk a lot about the ups and downs of the business and the strange things that happen. And since basketball season last year with Michigan, there's been a lot of ups and downs. And let's start off with uh, the near plane crash as you guys were taking off on your way to the Big Ten tournament where fortunately everybody was okay and you guys ended up going on a long run afterwards. But just take us through the scene of what was going on in that moment. Well, Michigan flies out of Willow Run Airport, which is in Ypsilanti. It's uh, between Detroit Metro Airport and University of Michigan. So um, it's a, a little bit of a smaller airport, but it's much more convenient in a number of different ways. So um, it was a pretty windy day that day, Logan. I remember looking at a lot of people having, you know, their struggles to get into the plane in the first place because of how windy it was. And I, I remember asking somebody, I assume were delayed, and they said, "No, I mean we're, we're taking off," which kind of surprised me. And as we uh, we loaded things up and we started down the runway, you could feel the, the plane. I don't want to call it rocking, but you could feel it struggling to break through some of that heavy, you know, wind. And we got up for a little bit and then came right back down. And I remember, cause I was sitting on the window seat when usually I sit on an aisle, but I was sitting in the window seat and I remember saying to my engineer who was right next to me, I said to him, why is there, why am I seeing a bunch of sod and gravel and grass? come up near the window and we had run through the runway onto some soil and then suddenly we hit a chain link fence that and and then into almost like a gully a ditch a, a big ditch and that prevented us from going any further had we gone any further without that chain link fence without the pilot's ability to put on the brakes which you could smell clearly. It smelled like something was burning, but you could, you could smell the brakes. And, and without our ability to uh, hit that ditch, uh, we would have gone into some woods and into a ravine, Logan. That's where it was. And I remember seeing just a ton of equipment. I shouldn't say equipment, but it was a ton of baggage and things flying throughout the, the, you know, the, the, the cabin. Uh, there were, a number of things, you know, a lot of, you got the overhead compartments, those are flying open and things are falling out of them. Somebody's laptop from the back of the um, plane actually came up and landed on my lap. 
and I was right over the wing of the plane, the right wing of the plane. So um, it was a pretty hairy experience. There's no question about that. Um, I was I was surprised at the very next day when we flew out, um, how many of the kids, how many of the players, I should say, uh, were calm and cool and just ready to watch, you know, whatever take place. Um, usually there's apprehension after something like that takes place. They did not have any as I watched their faces when they walked on the plane originally. So uh, that's an experience we'll never forget. Michigan used it as a bonding moment. They used it as an opportunity to appreciate the game that they love so much and appreciate one another and ended up becoming the first eight seed in Big Ten tournament history to win the entire tournament championship. So you said that the players didn't have a lot of apprehension. Did you have any apprehension getting back on a plane the next day? No, I didn't. I mean, look, afterwards, and, and look, it, it's it's a plane crash. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, you're you're going 200 miles per hour down a runway, and you end up slamming on the brakes and running into a ditch and a chain link fence, and people are thrown around a little bit. I hit my head on the glass or on the window to my right, and then on the front seat, um, we got up in an orderly fashion. People were so incredibly professional on how they got up and there was no panic. There was no screaming from people. Um, everybody was told to leave whatever they could get up and, and depart as quickly as possible, deport as quickly as possible. And my partner, Terry Mills and I did just that. And we did so jumping off the right wing of the plane, which is the first time I've ever had to deport a plane that way. Um, but no, I mean, originally when we went into a, a nearby hangar, and we ended up uh, talking amongst ourselves and coach went to the players and gave them some options on what we could do. We could fly out later that day. We could bus to Washington, D.C., which would be a two-day venture. We could fly out the next day. Um, you know, you, you could see people's uh, concerns a little bit. People were shaken up a little bit after the fact. You know, I mean, you're calling your loved ones, trying to remind them that everything's going to be all right and so on and so forth. Um, but the players the next day, I was uh, I was amazed at how stoic they were. And quite honestly, Logan, I, I was amazed at the coaching staff and the flight crew and how, they, how orderly they were in, in order to, to get us off the, the plane as quickly and civilly and, and safely as possible. So, um, no, I didn't I didn't have any reservations the next day. I probably would not have wanted to fly out that same day. So I thought it was a smart move on the part of the coaching staff and the players to decide to fly out the next morning. Obviously, the statistically, it's far rarer to get in a plane incident, plane crash, as you call it, than it is to get in even a car or bus wreck. But being on the Michigan flights since, I believe, 2004, if I read it correctly, did you ever have anything similar to that? Of course, probably some minor turbulence here or there. Have, had you ever come close to anything similar? Not with not with Michigan basketball, no, but on, on other flights with other teams and so on and so forth I have. But no, nothing like that, no. So second in your kind of ups and downs and uh, – recently and we've talked to a lot of sportscasters on this and we don't want to get into the the why and how and whatever but just more about how you reacted when you were pretty recently fired from or laid off I don't know what the correct term is at WDFN from your morning drive talk show 
what was your mentality when that happened, and how did you react to it taking the high road? Well, look, I mean, these things happen in this business. You know, um, our, our business more and more is, is going toward national syndication. Um, some markets it works. Detroit, it does not. It's been proven time and time again where station managers or station companies, uh, broadcasting companies who aren't located in the city in which they broadcast. We, you know, The station that I worked for, the, the headquarters are not in Detroit. Uh, people don't know what Detroit is all about. You have people come in and they start running stations from different markets and they try to be almost cookie cutter. They try to look at it as if it's like any other market. And I think markets can be, can be very unique. I think Detroit from a sports standpoint is extremely unique. They don't give a crap about, you know, New York. They don't care about Los Angeles. They don't care about the big names. They care about their names, their teams, their universities, their alma maters and things like that. And, um, like I've, I've tried to tell that to people. Um, sometimes they heed my advice. Other times they don't. Um, that's okay. Uh, it's a big reason why I chose to diversify as much as I did throughout my career, because I realized that there are some people making decisions that I don't always agree with. And I don't always think, I think are, are best, not just for, for me personally, but for, you know, the, the, the station or, or the audience in which, you know, I reach. So, um, that's why I do TV. That's why I do blogging. That's why I do podcasts and so on and so forth. And that's why I do play by play. So, um, I'm going to be fine. Uh, I think there's things that I'll continue to do. Um, I've worked an awful lot for Fox sports Detroit. It's one of the things I enjoy most about my job. I'll continue to do Michigan basketball and Eastern Michigan football as long as they'll have me. And We'll see what happens from there. I want to follow up on that, the uniqueness of the Detroit market and the way that you're from that area originally, if I read my uh, research correctly. How important is it for you to have that deep understanding of that market that you have, and how has that led to your success? Well, I, I don't think that's always the reason, you know, people have success in a specific market. I don't think you have to necessarily be from that market, but I do think it helps. Okay. I mean, there's been plenty of people, friends of mine who've worked in this market who aren't from Detroit. And there are plenty of people I know at different markets who aren't from the, the market they currently work in. And there, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you want to be accepting to everybody as long as they understand what's going on in that market. Um, but I, I do think it's important to know your fan base and, and the Detroit fan base, and I think it's the best sports town in America, and I say that without any reservation, and I say it without any bias, and I say it because Detroit is has four major sports, and they are supported you know, with great passion. They have two major universities, and on top of those two major universities, which have quality, high-level football, basketball, hockey, and baseball programs, there are also mid-major programs, downtown Detroit, lower-level programs, and a number of others in the area that get plenty of attention, too. I mean, is there another market in America that you can think of that supports four major franchises, two power five programs that have heavy-duty football, basketball, and hockey programs and support it as much as 
the Detroit area does? I don't think there is. And if there is, I'd like to know what it is. You know, I mean, we can bring up diff- we can bring up New York all we want, but and New York supports you know two football teams, two bas- uh, two basketball teams to a certain extent now, two hockey teams, two baseball teams. There's there's no collegiate support out there whatsoever um, in, in the New York area. So I think Detroit's very unique in that regard. And I think what else we have to understand is that while other cities brag about Broadway about their shopping district downtown on Michigan Avenue, about their beaches in Los Angeles, and so on and so forth. Detroit brags about its its athletics. I mean, that that is the most important thing to people in Detroit for the most part. I mean, they go to games and other athletes are the stars. It's not Hollywood stars. It's not a bunch of people who are, are making record albums per se. It's other athletes. When you go to a Red Wing game and you see some members of the Tigers or Lions there, that's a big deal. So the athletes in our town are as important as, you know, the, the Hollywood movie stars in Los Angeles, the Broadway actors in New York, if you get my drift. So it's, it's stuff like that, that I think it's, it's important. It's important to, for people to grasp too, that Detroiters want to hear about their teams, not about the national team. So as much as there are certain four letter network brands that, to take over a lot of radio stations these days it just doesn't work in detroit it never has and it never will so as the broadcaster in detroit and i should preface this by saying i've been to the detroit area once i know the national uh, perception of the city is that it's struggling but you talk about well, the not area. anymore i mean okay. that that was the perception i don't know when you were in detroit but yeah, I mean, and it was a legitimate perception. It wasn't a perception; it's a reality. I mean, it, it was struggling. They went from you know, you're talking over one and a half million people, two million people in the city, to under eight hundred thousand. That's a struggle. When when it's hard to find a shopping district, that's a struggle. When it's hard to find gas stations, it's a struggle. When teams are in the suburbs, that's a struggle. Well, that's not the way it is any longer. Ford Field is downtown. It's as nice a football stadium as there is in the National Football League. Comerica Park is right next to it. Comerica Park's as nice a baseball stadium as you'll find in Major League Baseball. And they're opening up now a multi-billion dollar facility that will house both the Red Wings and the Pistons next year. It will also have some collegiate events. And Dallasville downtown is the Fox Theater that was rejuvenated and has become one of the best indoor theaters in America. And in addition to Little Caesars Arena that will house the Red Wings and Pistons, you're going to have a shopping district downtown that should be done by 2021 or so. A shopping district uh, with not just shops and restaurants, but living area and so on and so forth that will make any city jealous. It's uh, it's a multifaceted uh, construction project going on downtown, and it's helped revitalize the city without question. With such a strong identity to sports, as you say, with the market of Detroit that the people have, does that add extra pressure to be great as a broadcaster and to bring your A-game every time? No, I don't think so. I, I would hope any broadcaster in any market, I don't care the size of the market or the location, would expect to be great. Um, I, I think Detroit can... You can get exposed pretty quick. I suppose you could do that in any major market, but I think in Detroit especially, you can get exposed pretty darn quick if you start mispronouncing certain streets, certain cities, 
certain um, manufacturing. I, I recall one time where there was a, a sports anchor who, instead of saying the Oldsmobile Classic for a golf event, they called it Oldsmobile and never lived that down, you know? So I don't think Detroit is any more unique than anything else in that regard. But, um, I, I can tell you this, I think, uh, D- Detroiters, uh, are, are willing to give second chances, but they understand and don't forget a whole lot of things either. So what was your first break into the sports casting industry? You went to uh, central Michigan university. What was your first break getting into the business professionally after that point? Yeah, I don't know if I quite, quite honestly, I'm not sure I had a break per se. Um, I, I can tell you, I worked my way up. It's different today. There's a lot of people who come right out of college and they're immediately in the major markets, whether they're ready or not, because they don't, it doesn't cost a lot of money to hire them. And, and because, you know, the people have de-emphasized sports in, uh, on, on network TV or on, uh, on local television, I should say, um, but I worked my way up from a really small town right out of college to um, minor league baseball to back to Detroit, working a couple of jobs for five days a week, including some part-time sports anchor work at a CBS radio station in Detroit. Um, I guess if you wanted to call a break, uh, the executive producer for Fox Sports Detroit um, offered me an opportunity to do some TV work and uh, when they first came on the air, and I did it. And I've been working for them ever since. Um, I suppose there was another break where I was at Joe Lewis Arena calling a college hockey game, and uh, one of their assistant sports, uh, one of their assistant athletic directors came up and asked me if I'd be interested in calling Michigan basketball. And obviously, I, I was extremely interested, and, and I was uh, I consider myself very fortunate to be able to be the voice of Michigan hoops as well. So there's a couple of opportunities there that I think I've seized the moment on. But somebody did take, I don't know if you want to call it a chance or not, but uh, they did notice and and give me that opportunity. So let's go back to that first stop. You said it was in a small town. Where was it and what did you learn while you were there that you still apply today? Well, that was a a small town called South Haven, Michigan. It was a mom, it was a, a husband and wife owned radio station. It's still the best radio station I've ever worked for. And it's the best radio station I ever worked for because he was the general manager. She was the sales manager. And it gave us, you know, someone to respond to every single day. Somebody who cared as much as we did about the success of the radio station because it was their livelihood. Uh, I worked six days a week, uh, Monday through Friday, and then on, on Sunday as well. And I, I worked uh, really hard there doing a lot of different things. High school play-by-play, sports, news covering governmental meetings, local governmental meetings. It, it taught me work ethic. It taught me how to get along with people. It taught me, it taught me to be um, responsible and, and versatile. And I think a, a lot of people could use that type of lesson these days on, and, a, and a willingness to, uh, if you want to call it pay your dues, but do what is necessary, do what is best for the station at the time. Instead of getting caught in your own bubble, it was more about what can I do to make this place successful? That's what I learned there, and I still do it to this day. When you were there, did you have any fun stories where you went to a location and everything just went horribly wrong in one way or another? Any kind of funny, I like to call them broadcast horror stories, to share? 
Well, Logan, that was a long time ago. I've made so many. <laughs> there's been, like you, I'm sure, there's there's plenty of times where we wish uh, we had something to do over again. I, I don't know if I can recall one particular moment. I just know uh, those people were very patient with me. It was a proving ground, and then it was a stepping stone at the same time, and they, and they knew it, and that's what I appreciated most about them. So what was your first break getting into Division One play-by-play? Well, I've done Eastern Michigan for a long time, and I was approached by their athletic director one time with a lunch at the Rensen to call play-by-play, and uh, I, I truly enjoyed that. Um, I, I'm a I'm a mid-major graduate at Central Michigan, which is a rival of Eastern Michigan, which is ironic because I call Eastern Michigan now, and um, they, they they wanted you know somebody who had a had a decent name in the market. Um, somebody who could do a decent job. And uh, I like to think uh, we've helped each other out in that regard. So that was about 17 years or so. I've, I've continued to do it. A lot of people ask me why. And I tell them because I love the people there. I tell them because they treat us well. Uh, they appreciate our hard work. I do it with one of my best friends in the world, Rob Rubick, who's a former tight end for the Detroit Lions. And we have an absolute blast. It's not working. It's an opportunity to call college football, walk on a football field, talk to coaches, talk to players, go to practice, learn every single day, and work with one of your best friends. It's pretty cool. How is the resources and environment different from a mid-major like Eastern Michigan and then going over basketball season to the University of Michigan where they have a little bit, I'm going to guess, a little bit more, a little bit bigger, and a little bit better in some ways. Oh, yeah. Well, the budget, obviously. Uh, but look, Eastern Michigan, it's not like we, we, we're, we're in need of anything. We're wanting for anything. They provide us with a statistician. They provide us with an engineer. Um, you know, you'd love a, a sideline reporter, but it's, it's, it's not vital, okay? So we get everything we could possibly want at Eastern Michigan. We, we travel um, on a charter. Any place we go, we go to some really cool places. You know, we, we go to West Point. We're going to Kentucky this year. We've been to LSU. We've been to Florida. We've been to a lot of different places that we may not have ever gotten the opportunity to go um, if we weren't calling for, for Eastern Michigan. For, for U of M basketball, um, you know, I, I'll tell you this. I'm, I'm treated with the utmost professionalism and respect at both places. And I, I wouldn't trade it. I really wouldn't. I love um, both dynamics equal. Um, I have great relationships with coaches and athletic directors at both places. I think both places appreciate the hard work that I give to them, just like I appreciate all the access and the trust that they have in my ability too. So I'm, I'm proud to be the voice of both. You mentioned that you called games at West Point. I'm going to imagine that was uh, when you guys played Army. I've heard from a lot of people that calling games there is a very unique experience. What was it like for you? Awesome. It's awesome. It's not as much calling games. You know, I mean, you're there in a press box. You're in a broadcast booth. Not a whole lot different than a lot of places, okay? It's more about getting there the day before, walking around, reading the history, seeing how beautiful that place is and admiring all the people who have been there and currently are there and what they do for our country. It's truly a special place to be able to go there, to go to the Naval Academy, 
I mean, it gave, it gave us goosebumps and I've been to army a couple of times. It's just so enjoyable when we, when we're able to go there and broadcast a game, the people there are phenomenal. Are there any other places around the country that you have been that compares to, you know, the army and the Naval Academy? Well, I, I don't think so, but there, there's, there's still some really cool places to broadcast from like Fog Allen, University of Michigan. I mean, we, we've broadcast from there and I've always enjoyed broadcasting various places. I've gone to Duke and broadcast there. So Fog Allen at Kansas and, the, and all, obviously the places of the Big Ten, going to Maui with Michigan, um, going down to Orlando with Michigan, calling the NCAA tournament, you know, the, the, one of the highlights of my career there's a few highlights, but one of them for sure is calling the national championship game down in Atlanta when Michigan had that classic game against Louisville. Um, I've had the good fortune of calling three outdoor hockey games at the collegiate level. Um, two of them are, the, are, are two of the highest rated uh, hockey games in the history of television. Um, the Cold War at the University or at Michigan State University that started it all back in uh, 2001, I believe, and then. Um, Michigan had, um, at the big house, the, the rematch, and there were, you know, over a hundred thousand people there. I've also called a Michigan game against Ohio state at, at Cleveland's Jacobs field at the time. So that was pretty cool too. But those two outdoor hockey games are among my highlights and as well as the, the national championship for Michigan. Um, and then of course, Eastern Michigan finally getting to a bowl game last year playing in the Bahamas Bowl, um, Chris Creighton turning that program around what was a, a team that wasn't too long before he got there, 0-12, to take them to a bowl game for the first time since the mid-'80s was pretty special too. So I've been really fortunate in that regard, Logan, to, to call some games for places that I like, for people I admire, and with people who I am really good friends with. It's, uh, it's, it's quite the charm broadcasting life so far. So going through an 0-12 season, I imagine that had to be very difficult in the way that you're calling for a school. You don't want to be overly critical to a point, but you still have to be a little bit journalistic in your call. How do you balance uh, keeping positive when the field is not, when the product on the field is not especially good? Well, what I do is I concentrate rather than dwelling on the negative of the team I'm calling the game for, I dwell on the positive of the other team because there's somebody doing something pretty damn special out there and, and doing it pretty well on a regular basis. So it's, it's not something you can do every single Saturday when you're on en route to 0-12. But let's face it, even at 0-12, there were times where they were in some games and you want to, you know, you're, you're you're talking about that the harder part is not calling the game because you can concentrate on what the other team is doing so well. The harder part is doing a, a pre or a post game show with a coach who's Oh, and 10, how do you handle going into game number 11, knowing you don't want to be winless on the season. And then the post game show, obviously talking to a coach who's just experienced yet another setback. So, because we realize and fans don't always get this glimpse, but as a play-by-play voice, you see how hard coaches work. Other people can write it. Other people can talk about it. But when you see it, it's a different level. You see how much film work they go through. You see the the pain that they, they go through when their kids can't be successful. You see how hard they're working at putting kids in different situations to try and make them successful. And 
you don't want them to lose those kids. You don't want them to lose the fan base either. So um, that's the, I think that's the ultimate challenge with a team that isn't playing up to par. So I want to get into a little bit more detail of your process of becoming the University of Michigan basketball play-by-play man. You said that you had just a random connection approach you at one point. What were the next steps uh, that led to you sealing the deal with that position? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as much random. It was one of the uh, assistant um, athletic directors who came up to me and you know they had an opening and uh, he, I think he appreciated my hockey call and wanted to know if there was any interest there and uh, who wouldn't want to, to be the voice of the University of Michigan in any sport. So um, it, it, it really didn't take long after that, Logan. It was, sure, let's let's talk. We, we talked about a certain rate. They put me in touch with the broadcasting rights holder, which now is IMG, and uh, it, it was an easy fix from there, doing games, doing um, coaches shows once a week uh, on radio, and coaches show once a week on television too. So it's a complete package, and it was uh, it was pretty special. Did you grow up a fan of the University of Michigan, or is that something you just developed along the way? Yeah, good question. Because I think a lot of people, it's either Michigan or Michigan State. I I didn't. Uh, I, I was a fan of Michigan football uh, for for a long time, even though nobody in my family went to the University of Michigan. Uh, my oldest son graduated from there, ironically. But um, no, I, I I can't say that I was necessarily a fan of the school overall. I mean, I had friends who went there. I knew that I wasn't smart enough to get in there. I was more of a professional sports fan than anything else. It wasn't as much about watching Michigan play football or basketball or, or hockey on TV back then. For me, it was the name Michigan has something to it. It's 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 resounding in college athletics and I think athletics in general. So um, I, I know I, I appreciated as I got older, um, I, I would visit friends of mine at the University of Michigan quite a bit, had an opportunity to see the size of the school, much larger than the school that I attended and, and the traditions and things of that nature. But I can't say that I grew up saying, oh, I, I'm, I'm definitely Michigan or Michigan State. I was, I don't want to say neutral, but if you had to force me to pick one, it would have been the University of Michigan when I was younger. But I, I wasn't all in buying all Michigan garb like you see a lot of kids do these days. So covering Michigan basketball, obviously there's been a lot of great moments since you've been there, including that 2013 run. And covering some small college and high school teams when a team's on a run towards a potential championship, there's an energy and just a different feeling to a team. What was it like covering that team, and what are some of the stories that you um, can tell that made that team special? Well, I think in order for you to be successful at Division One, if you want to win a championship, you have to have future pros on your team. Sure, you can have some exceptions to that rule, but I think in general, you have to have cha- uh, next-level players. And you could tell with Michigan, with Trey Burks and Mitch McGarry and Glenn Robinson and Nick Stauskas and Karis LeVert, that they were going to be next-level players. Did I know at the beginning of that season that, sure, Michigan was going to play, go deep into the NCAA tournament? No, because there were a lot of people questioning. There, There were a lot of people, Logan, taking South Dakota State 
at the Palace of Auburn Hills where the Pistons used to play. That was in Michigan's backyard. There were people expecting South Dakota State to upset Michigan that day. And then when Michigan ran them out of the gym, everybody was pouring in on VCU. They thought Shaka Smart's defense and their ability to run. And I remember Michigan just going through that entire tournament, listening to everything people had to say and not paying any attention to it whatsoever. But I remember thinking to myself and talking and doing a lot of different interviews saying, I think this is the game where Michigan tells everybody, watch out, because they love to run. And Michigan had multiple ball handlers. And that's the beauty of it. That team, and there's been teams since, but that team had so many good and versatile players. Trey Burke got a ton of headlines, and rightfully so. But you had a bunch of guys who could play different positions, handle the basketball, rebound the basketball, shoot the hoop. I mean, they, they did a lot. Mitch McGarry against VCU going coast to coast. Florida disrespecting, or Kansas, I should say, disrespecting Michigan the way they did. Michigan blowing out Florida. I mean, it wasn't even close. I mean, they, they just steamrolled that team. And then I remember watching Indiana play Syracuse, and they had no answer for Jim Beheim's 2-3 defense because all Indiana did was bring Cody Zeller up to the elbow. He drove, and it would try to gain some type of foul because that's what Indiana always did. They would get fouls constantly. Well, Michigan didn't do that. Michigan put Tim Hardaway at the free throw line in that middle of that 2-3 zone. He would turn, and he was such a good passer and such a good 15-foot jump shooter that Syracuse had to respect that. And then I, I think the national championship game against Louisville still to this day, one of the best national championship games that I can recall. Not because it involved Michigan, not because I called it, just because of the action up and down and the number of of pros in that game. It was it was pretty cool to watch. So that season was really special. Um, there was a time where Michigan lost at Penn State. Penn State had not won a Big Ten game that year, but they beat Michigan. And everybody remembered that. And I remember how that team came together so closely after that and just basically said, we're not losing any longer. The Big Ten tournament didn't mean quite as much. They just wanted to get onto the NCAA tournament knowing that they were going to be there. Um, but that's a run that I'll never forget. It's truly one of the, the more special, um, uh, call it a month and a half, that I had in, in broadcasting. So one of the things I noticed doing research and trying to find some things to talk about for this podcast was I was reading, I think it was your article about winning Michigan Sportscaster of the Year. And in the picture, you were calling an Eastern Michigan football game, and you had handwritten spotting boards. Right. Not a ton of people do that anymore. <laughs> what do you like about that, and uh, what is your method of preparation? That's a great observation. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny because I do Lions television preseason too, and I remember talking with uh, the, the Baltimore Ravens play-by-play voice, a friend of mine, Jerry Sandusky, great guy really good broadcaster for the Baltimore Ravens has been that for a long time. Um, calls cows and basketball as well. And he's got everything on his iPad, everything. And he saw my board. and was kind of laughing a little bit because yeah, it, it's total old school. I know a lot of people rather print them out and put everything. I, I totally get that. And I respect that. It, it, it helps me doing it by hand helps me remember everything. And that's what I do. So I put the, the two deeps on there um, for 
safeties, corners, wide receivers, I go a little bit deeper. I go three deep, obviously running backs too. Um, I read every media guide from cover to cover. And then I put those stories uh, on my, on my flip charts. Um, it's just the way I've always done it. It takes longer. Yes, but it works for me. And, uh, I, there are times where I've kind of you know, flirted with, with using a different system, but I always go back to this system because it's most comfortable for me and I can read it and I know where everything is. If people looked at my boards and I've had other play by play guys, they look at my boards and they're like, this is nuts. I can't, I can't decipher that. It's way too much information. I totally understand it. But what I do is I read every media guide. I print game notes, I highlight it, and then I transfer it all onto my boards. It's just the way I've always done it and the way I'm most comfortable. What do you do to get better even at this point of your career? Well, I, I look for input, Logan. I mean, I, I ask as many people, you know, what, what are you looking for? What do you want? I, I truly believe that social media can be evil, but it can be really helpful too. And when I'm sitting at the Fox Sports Detroit desk and I'm – doing a post-game show for Tigers or Red Wings or Pistons or whatever, and I'm reading on social media what fans are complaining about, that that helps me. You know, it, it helps me have a conversation with my analyst. It helps me with my questioning. Uh, I have some really good bosses uh, at Fox Sports Detroit who care an awful lot about our product. They are working with me on a regular basis to try and ask the right question. Anybody can ask a question. Here's, the, here's what you really try to find out. Who's going to ask a good question? And that's where I'm trying to get better. Am I asking not just questions? Am I asking good questions? Am I asking the questions that knowledgeable sports fans want? Not, oh, should you be fired? That's a stupid question. All right. It really is because no coach is going to answer that. No GM, no player, nothing like that. But asking a probing question, I think that's really important. And having a conversation, you know, how am I getting better? I got to have good conversations with my analysts. I got to make sure that if you're watching at home or you're listening at home, that a, you understand where the ball is when I'm telling you where it is. And B, does it sound like we're friends? Does it sound like you and I are pals just talking at a bar over a beer? I think that's really important for fans. That's when they'll listen to you an extended period of time. Are you describing what they need? Are you giving them the score as frequently as you need? Are, are you making it conversational, whether it be play-by-play, hosting, reporting, asking the right questions? All those are the things that I'm trying to pay attention to as much as possible every single day. Switching back and forth between TV and radio, what are some of the specific challenges of that? Yeah, here's the beauty of television. Um, you know, you, you don't have to describe everything because television – is a visual medium and people can see that. I think you insult your audience if you're describing every single thing that is taking place. So you have to, you have to have a better vocabulary to try and make sure you're, uh, except for hockey. Hockey's the only sport that I call or anybody would call where you have to call it as if it's radio. Everything else, the, the, the radio and TV call should be completely diverse, okay? But I think what's important is, you know, your vocabulary, your ability to use different words and describe things differently and, and not freak out if something's taking place and your analyst is in the middle of a story. There's, there's some other storytelling that you can get into in, in television that maybe you can't always in radio because you're so busy describing the action. 
the beauty of of radio is you're the producer, director, and play-by-play guy. You decide what goes, what is said, what is most important. Television, that's not you. You have a producer, you have a director in your ear. They're telling you different things that they're about to show, and it's a constant line of communication, not over the air, but on talkback on where we're going with certain things. There are certain storylines in TV you want to follow. In radio, you don't always have to adhere to that. When there is a storyline that is a surprise, and I ask this of you because I know this has happened to you. What was the Spike Albrecht, I think, came out of nowhere and had a bananas game in the NCAA tournament. How how do you shift game? He had 17 points for crying out loud. It was a career high. How do you shift gears from what you had planned as the storylines to make sure that you're covering it correctly? Well, in radio, there are no planned storylines, I don't think. I mean, you can get into certain things that are important, the type of numbers a guy has put up in the NCAA tournament, the type of uh, defense a team has played, uh, what might be different in this postseason tournament compared to what the team did in the regular season. But certain things take over. That's why sports is the greatest, the greatest um, reality TV there is, is because you don't know what's going to happen. TV, you can prepare all you want for storylines, but you know what? If teams and players are dictating it, you have to shift. You have to be willing to do that. You have to have that ability to do that. And you can't be so stubborn where you're shoving your prearranged storylines or your predetermined storylines down an audience's throat when it doesn't really matter and they don't care and something else has really taken over instead of that assumed storyline. you got to have an idea of what's going in. I'll give you an example. Tonight, Detroit plays Seattle, right? Justin Verlander's career against the Mariners is big. Miguel Cabrera's recent surge. J.D. Martinez, yes. All that good. But if Martinez is 0 for 2, and Cabrera is 0 for 2, and Verlander's out of the game, and suddenly you have Jose Iglesias has his first two-run, his first two-homer game of his career, what should be your focus? Forget the Martinez, Cabrera, and Verlander storyline. It's all about Jose Iglesias from that standpoint. So that's where the flexibility and and your understanding of the game has to, you know, uh, trump everything else. Okay, well, we will wrap this up here. We are visiting with Matt Shepard. He is the play-by-play voice of the Michigan Wolverines, Eastern Michigan Eagles, and pretty much everybody else at some point or another in the Detroit area market. And Matt, what I like to do for everyone listening into this is if someone wanted to reach out to you with a question, how would they do so? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Shep Matt. I have my own podcast of Shep Shower and Shave that is available on iTunes, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Um, so those are the ways that people can probably get a hold of me the best. All right. Well, I sure appreciate you for coming on, and we'll let you go. As I know, you got a you you were kind enough to do this in the car at your daughter's uh, lacrosse camp. Yeah, it was, it's always fun to get stay involved with the kids, Logan. Appreciate it anytime, buddy. Continued success with the podcast. This has been the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to take a minute if you're listening on iTunes and give us a review and a rating. It really helps the podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or you can follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan, or follow the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Say the Damn Score. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, make sure to Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.